Right, you guys can open up to the book of Job. You can go ahead and turn to chapter one. That's where we're going to be this morning. My name is Blake Jennings. For those of you I've not met, I'm the Southwood teaching pastor. Brian and I will be swapping campuses for the rest of July as we continue this series, our summer series. We're calling it Face to Face because we are studying theophanies in the Bible. A, a theophany is a face to face encounter with God, and God reveals himself visibly, audibly, face to face, a number of different ways in scripture. To Moses, he appeared as a burning bush. Today, to Job, he will appear in a hurricane. God reveals himself in scripture, and these these theophanies that are worth studying, they really stand out to us because of how rare they are. It's very rare that God reveals himself visibly and audibly. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we wish it wasn't that rare. Right, You really wish God would show up visibly and audibly more often to speak to you, to tell you what he wants you to do. I I remember in college I was really struggling with my faith, trying to decide if I believed that God existed, and I just kept thinking, God, this would be a whole lot easier if you'd just show up right here, right now, put my doubts at ease. And, And I remember later in my life I was wrestling with what career I should choose, and I remember thinking, God, it would be really a lot easier if you would just speak to me audibly and tell me what you want me to do. We want God to show up visibly and audibly, but that's not his way. That's not how God works. God rarely reveals himself visibly to us. He's always present everywhere around us, but rarely visible. Why is that? Why does God so rarely reveal himself visibly and audibly? Well, because God wants us to live by faith, not by sight. By faith, not by sight. That's how he's designed us to operate. Jesus says in the book of John, blessed are you who believe even though you do not see. There's more blessing from God available to those who do not see God and yet walk in faith, who choose to to believe. And so God very rarely reveals himself visibly and audibly. The vast majority of humanity will never see God in this life. But every once in a while, in the pages of scripture, God broke that paradigm and, and chose to reveal himself visibly and audibly to a person or to a group of people to teach the human race something incredibly important about himself. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at the book of Job. One of these rare face-to-face encounters between God and a man named Job. Now let me introduce Job to you if you look at Job chapter 1 verse 1. Let's learn a little bit about this man, Job, who's going to encounter God face-to-face. Verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So the first thing that we need to understand about Job is that he was a righteous man. He was a good man. He, he walked with the Lord. He was honest. You learn later in the book that he walked in purity. He was kind. He was a man of integrity. So a righteous man whom God blessed richly, incredibly blessed man. Look at verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. So an incredibly blessed man. God has richly blessed him. He has many wonderful things in his life, but then in the remainder of the book, Job loses all of them. He loses everything. Actually, it begins right there in in chapter one. In the span of just about two minutes, Job loses all of his children and all of his wealth. Look with me starting in verse 14. 
verse 14. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another servant also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died and I alone have escaped to tell you how long did that take me to read maybe two minutes in the span of two minutes Job loses everything all of his wealth all of his possessions and all of his children all dead he loses all that he has in chapter one then in chapter two he is afflicted with an incredibly agonizing disease we don't know what it was we just know that it's incredibly painful he was covered in boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet he was in such agonizing pain that he spent the next seven days sitting alone in a heap of ashes scraping his skin with broken pottery Incredible pain that this man endured. As the book goes on, he, he loses all of those people around him who cared about him. He's abandoned by, by his wife. She tells him to curse God and die. His friends uh, are convinced that he has some secret sin in his life. His neighbors ridicule him. Everyone he cares about abandons him. And so in a very short amount of time, this, this righteous man is afflicted with incredible suffering that he did not deserve. How does Job respond to that undeserved suffering? Well, at first he responds incredibly well, shockingly well, actually. If you look with me, chapter one, verse 20. Chapter one, verse 20. Then Job arose and and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. This is right after his children have died. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And then this disease afflicts him and he's in incredible pain. Look how he responds to that. Chapter two, verse nine. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So incredible suffering comes into Job's life and yet he's walking in faith. He is continuing to believe in the goodness of God. He's continuing to worship God for a while. For a while, but, but after hours of suffering turn into days of suffering, turn into weeks of suffering, Job begins to falter. He begins to falter at the beginning of, of chapter three. He, he gives into despair. Look at chapter three, verse one. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said a boy is, is conceived. Job is, is under such pain. He's in such agony that he wishes he had never been born. He is giving up hope that life is ever gonna get better. And so he's giving into despair. And then as the book continues, he begins to give in into bitterness. He begins to accuse God of, of cruelty, of, of injustice. 
You see it later in the book. Job chapter 30, verse 20. I, I cry to you for help. This is Job speaking to God, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job was, was crushed by this, this suffering that led him to, to think about, about life and, and about God, and, and he reached this conclusion. He, he concludes, well, well, God is sovereign. He controls all things, including my suffering, and, and I am innocent. I haven't done anything to deserve this suffering, so therefore, just logical conclusion, God must be cruel. God must be unjust. Job begins to accuse God. And finally, Job begins to demand an answer from God. He demands that God show up and and explain himself to Job. He says in chapter 10, I am weary of my life. I will complain without restraint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Tell me why you are contending with me. Job wants an answer. God, why have you allowed this suffering to come into my life that I don't deserve? That, that boldness, that demand of God, it grows as the book continues. By the end of the book, Job 31, he says, if only I had someone to hear me, here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. This is, this is legal language. Job is, is requesting that God would go to court. He wants to sue God. He wants to force God to give him an explanation for why God would allow all of this undeserved suffering into his life. Now, I... I can't really accuse Job here. I, I can't look down at him for this attitude because I know in my own life when, when I have suffered for a long period of time, for, for no fault of my own, I have felt the same way as him. I've wanted God to show up and explain himself. I've wanted God to come and tell me why he's allowed this suffering into my life. I felt the same way as Job. I remember when my wife and I went, went through years of infertility, struggling to have children. I kept asking myself and, and praying to God, God, you gave us this desire to have children. That's from you. And you told us in Genesis chapter one, be fruitful and, and fill the earth. And so why are you holding out on us? What are you doing? Why are our friends having their second and third babies and we haven't even had one? God, what's up with that? What are you doing? When you're doing your best to walk with the Lord, when you're obeying him, when, when you're doing the best in, in, in life and yet you lose your job or your business goes belly up or your spouse walks out on you or your kids rebel or, or you're diagnosed with cancer, it is natural to ask God, Why? When I'm trying to walk with you, when I'm trying to obey you, why would you allow this pain and suffering into my life? We want God to show up and give us an explanation when we suffer. But the book of Job is a warning that we need to be careful what we ask for. Job wanted God to show up and give him an explanation. And so God showed up. God arrived in chapter 38. God shows up, but it's not like Job expected it to be. Turn to chapter 38. God shows up, chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Whirlwind, what, what does that mean? Well, whirlwind in, in Hebrew, it's a mighty storm. The closest equivalent we would have here in Texas is a hurricane. 
God shows up in a hurricane. It, it hits immediately. There's no warning. It's a supernatural storm. It's powerful. It's dangerous. It's, it's deadly and it terrifies Job. He's, he's so scared that Job doesn't say anything else in chapter 38. He doesn't say anything. He's just overwhelmed with terror when God shows up in this hurricane. It's not at all what Job expected. It reminds me of a friend I had growing up who for some reason in, in adolescence is going through junior high, he really wanted to try chewing tobacco. I don't know why it's gross to me, but I think he had some, some older friends who were doing it and he thought it'd be really cool. And so he kept begging his parents to get him some chewing tobacco so he could try it out. And they kept saying no, but he kept begging. And so finally they gave in and they bought him a bag of chewing tobacco and gave it to him, but they didn't tell him how to use it. So he went out in the backyard and he starts grabbing handful after handful and stuffing it in his mouth, chewing it up and swallowing it. Yeah, that didn't last long. He got crazy sick. He threw it up. He never wanted to touch it again. Something that he thought would be really enjoyable, it turned out to be a nightmare. That's exactly what Job gets when God shows up. It's not at all what he expected it to be. It's a nightmare. He's absolutely overwhelmed and terrified when God shows up in this supernaturally powerful hurricane. God shows up in this mighty storm and he begins to speak. And if you want to understand what God is teaching Job, you have to pay careful attention both to what God does say and to what God doesn't say. Got to pay attention to both. What God does tell Job and what God doesn't tell Job. And we're going to start with the second What God does not tell Job in the next few chapters when God shows up in this hurricane. If you read all four chapters, chapter 38 to 41, you will find that God never tells Job why he is suffering. That's what Job desperately wanted to know and God tells him nothing in answer to that question. God does not explain himself at all to Job. There is no answer to why Job is suffering, no answer at all. As best we can tell, Job lived much longer, but it would appear that he died still not knowing why God had allowed all of this undeserved suffering into his life. Job never knew, but but fortunately, we actually do know. That's the kind of funny thing about the book of Job. I don't know if you realize this. It was not written by Job. It was written centuries later by an author whom, whom we don't know. We don't know who wrote this book. What we do know is that God gave this author a vision into the events that were going on in heaven that led to Job's suffering. Job knew nothing about what was going on in heaven, but the author's given this vision into heaven so, so we know what was actually going on that brought about this suffering in Job's life. So leave your finger in chapter 38 and turn back to chapter 1. Back to chapter one, we're gonna see this vision into heaven, but I want you to remember what we're about to read, Job knew nothing about. This is all a mystery to him. God revealed it much later to whoever wrote this book. Look with me starting in verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, 
All that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So what Job doesn't realize that we know because we get this vision into heaven that Job didn't have. What we know that Job didn't know is that God wasn't the one behind the suffering. It was Satan. It was Satan at work in his life bringing about all of this pain, taking away his children, afflicting him with disease. It was always Satan who was doing that in his life. And that forces us to ask, why would God allow Satan to afflict such pain upon one of God's children? Why would God grant Satan's request? Well, to answer that question, you have to look at Satan's name. It's actually not a proper name. It's not like Blake. Uh, Satan is a title. It means the accuser. And that's what he does. That is Satan's business. That's his primary mission. He accuses us. And so God praises Job in front of all of heaven. He says, look at this righteous man. And Satan responds by accusing Job in front of God and all of heaven. Satan's accusation is very simple. Job's not a righteous man. He's not a good man. He's just opportunistic. He sees profit. He sees that if he obeys, he gets everything he ever wanted. He's not a good man. He's just just an opportunistic man. He just takes advantage of you, God. And so God responds, okay, Satan, I will let Job prove to you what a good man he is and what a fool you are. I will allow you to afflict him incredibly. You You can't take his life. You can do anything else. So God allows Satan this access into Job's life, but it's for a good purpose. It's it's so that Job can prove to to all of of heaven and, and to all of us what a good and righteous man he is. And what's the result of that? Well, here we are probably 4,000 years or so after Job lived, and we know about the guy. You know about Job. You look up to Job. He's a, he's a hero of the faith. Yes, he does kind of poorly in the middle of the book, but then he repents and he exercises incredible faith at the end, and that makes him a hero, one of the greatest heroes you'll find anywhere in the Bible. We know Job and we look up to Job because of his suffering. If he would have never suffered, you realize, if he wouldn't have suffered, you wouldn't know who Job is. He would just be yet another forgettable rich guy in the history of the human race. It's because God allowed suffering in his life that Job became this great hero. He proved to all of humanity for all of time what a righteous man he is. So God had a good purpose behind this suffering in Job's life. We know that, but Job did not. God never explained this to Job like he explains it to us. And that forces us to ask why. Why wouldn't God just tell Job, here's what's going on. Let me tell you what Satan's up to and why I'm letting him do it. God never does that. Why? Because that's not God's way. That's not God's way. God hardly ever explains to us why we are suffering. He doesn't give us the reasons behind any particular suffering in our lives. So if you're suffering this morning, why are you suffering? Is it because Satan is at work in your life? Is it because someone sinned and the pain of that sin is falling on you? Is it somehow to spare you from some other greater suffering? Is it to draw someone to Christ who's watching how you suffer? I have no idea. God doesn't tell us in this life. He doesn't answer that why question for us in this life. He does not explain to us any particular suffering in our lives. 
And so why didn't God give Job an explanation? Well, because he doesn't give us an explanation. If God would have told Job what was going on in heaven, then this book, the book of Job, would be useless to us. We don't get an explanation. We'd have nothing to learn if he got an explanation. God didn't give Job an explanation because he doesn't give us an explanation. God knows that that we want to know why he's allowed this suffering into our lives. He knows that we want to know that, but God doesn't give us the why that we want. He gives us the why that we need. God doesn't tell us why we're suffering. He tells us something far more important. Why he is worthy of our trust even when we suffer. That's what God wants you to know doesn't care that you know the particular reasons why you are suffering. He wants you to know why he is worthy of your trust even when you suffer. And that's the meaning. That's the message of the next four chapters, 38 to 41, as as God speaks to Job from the hurricane. What God is trying to do is help Job understand why God is worthy of our trust even when we suffer. So let's look there, go back to chapter 38. There are two speeches in 38 through 41, both God speaking. The first speech is chapters 38 to 39. Uh, It begins with God summarizing Job's accusation. So look with me, chapter 38, uh, verse two. Verse two, it says, this is God speaking. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Well, that's what Job had, had been doing. Counsel, that's the plans of God. Job had been darkening the plans of God. He had been saying that God's plans were not good. That God didn't know what he was doing. That, that God was a poor ruler of, of the universe. So Job's accusation against God, his first accusation was, God, you don't know what you're doing. I I do not approve of how you are running this universe. I do not approve of what you are doing in my life. It's Job's first accusation. God, you don't know what you're doing. And God responds to that first accusation, starting in the next verse. So look with me, verse three. God says, now gird up your loins like a man and I will instruct you and you instruct me. It's a pretty strong way to start. Pretty bold words. God challenges Job. And then look at verse four. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God takes Job back to the beginning, back to creation. And he asks Job, well, Job, did you create this world? Did you build this planet? Oh, no, you didn't. Okay, well, well, do you understand how the planet works? Do you understand how I made the world? Were you there to see how I built this universe? Oh, you, you weren't? You, you weren't there? You don't understand how, how the world works? And God continues that line of thought all the way through chapter 38. Job, do you understand how the oceans work? Do you understand how light works? How stars move? Do you understand how the rain falls? Do you understand how this world operates? And then in chapter 39, God lists out seven creatures that he has made. The mountain goat, the deer, the donkey, the ox, the ostrich, the horse, and the hawk. And God's point is basically saying to Job, Job, let me get this straight. You don't even understand how a horse can run so fast or how a hawk can fly so high and yet you would dare to stand in judgment over me who gave the horse's speed and the hawk his flight. Really? What God wants Job to understand. Job had accused God of, of not knowing what he's doing and so God's response is simply, well, Job, you don't even know enough to accuse me of that. 
Brother, you don't have enough information about how the universe operates to accuse me of doing a bad job in running it. You're simply not intelligent enough. That's way above your pay grade. I noticed in Time Magazine a a few weeks ago, cover story about butter. Maybe you noticed that. It would appear that after decades of telling us that we should not put butter on all of our food, now doctors and and scientists have have changed their mind and actually butter's back on the table. It's okay to use some butter. It's, oh man, (laughs) I feel the same way. But, But here's the deal. Here's the deal. While butter is is good for my taste buds, this is really humbling news to me because it felt like if the human race had figured out anything for sure in this universe, it's that we shouldn't be eating butter. It felt like that was clear, that, that we had figured that out and then it turns out that's wrong and that's proof to us that we are really fallible, that we do not know all that we think that we know. That our, our information, our understanding is limited. That butter article is just one more piece of proof that we will never be in a position to stand in judgment over God. We simply do not understand this universe well enough to judge how he runs it. That's the first thing he wants us to understand. First response to Job's accusation. But there's a second response here. A second thing that God wants Job to understand. It's kind of hidden in chapter 38. But as you read chapter 38, if you notice, God keeps talking about how good the world is. How wonderful and beneficial it is. Look with me, chapter 38. Chapter 38, verse 8. God says to Job, Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. In the ancient world, people were terrified of the ocean. They didn't have big boats. They did not have reliable navigation. So the ocean, the sea, was a place of chaos and death to everybody in the ancient world. They're terrified of it. And so God's reminding Job. Well, Job, do you realize I'm the one who restrained the chaos of the sea, who set its boundaries so that you would have a safe place to live on land? God continues that line of thought throughout chapter 38. God says, I'm the one who gave you light that drives out darkness. I'm the one who gave you rain that waters your crops. I'm the one who gave you stars to mark the season. I'm the one who gives you food so that you can live. God wants Job to understand that this good and and beneficial universe we live in, it is proof that God knows what he's doing. Just look around and see all the goodness in God's world. And the challenge is, I don't know if you can identify with this, when you suffer, when life gets really hard and really painful, we tend to get tunnel vision, don't we? Life kind of narrows down and all you see is the bad stuff in your life, the painful stuff in your life. And so what God is challenging us to do when we're in pain, when we're suffering, is to look up and look out and see all the goodness in the world around us and to recognize that God has been incredibly good to us, that he's given us life, that he's given us this this planet. We didn't make it. We, We didn't earn it. It's a gift. He gives us air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink. You take him for granted every day. God wants us to look out and see all the good in this world and realize it is proof that he knows what he's doing and that we can trust him. God wants Job to trust him even when life is hard. And so God tells him, first of all, you don't know enough about how the world works to accuse me of being bad. 
at running it. And second, look around at creation and see all the goodness I've given to you. That's the point of the first speech. Second speech is, is similar, but approaches it from a little bit of a different angle. Chapter 40 and 41, you can turn to chapter 40. In this second speech, God is going to tackle Job's second accusation. So first accusation was, God, you don't know what you're doing. Second accusation is, God, you are unjust. You are unrighteous. Job had been crushed by suffering. And, and because of this suffering in his life, he had come to believe that that he was a better judge of what is good and what is right than God. Job felt like he was better at determining right and wrong than God was. And so God shows up to answer that accusation, to put Job in his place. So look with me, starting in chapter 40, let's start in verse six. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Again, a strong challenge. Verse eight, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? That's ultimately what Job had been doing, condemning God, calling God unjust. Here's how God responds with a challenge in verse 10. Okay, Job, adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty majesty pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand hide them in the dust together bind them in the hidden place then I will confess to you that your own right hand can save you what God is saying is Job you think you're a better judge than me okay get to it Get busy judging the universe. Humble the proud, crush them, punish the wicked, deliver the innocent. Let's see you judge. And then God does something very strange. From the next verse on, all the way through chapter 40, all the way through chapter 41, God gives Job a natural history lesson about two creatures, the behemoth and the Leviathan. Look, starting in verse 15, the behemoth. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. We don't know what this creature is. Maybe a dinosaur. Most commentators think it's probably a large adult hippopotamus. God talks about the behemoth and then he spends all of chapter 41 talking about the the Leviathan. Look at chapter 41, verse one. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Again, we don't know for sure what Leviathan is. Maybe a dinosaur, maybe some ancient sea creature. Most commentators think it's a large crocodile. So why would God give a man who is suffering a natural history lesson about hippopotamuses and crocodiles. Well, the key is in understanding what the ancient world thought of hippos and crocs. Ancient people were absolutely terrified of them. They lived in a world without guns and without SUVs. You, you had no protection against them. You did not go hunt adult hippos or crocs. You ran from them. An adult hippo can weigh up to three tons and run almost 20 miles an hour. It's one of the most aggressive and dangerous creatures on earth. A full-grown crocodile can weigh up to 4,000 pounds, be over 20 feet long, and yet can totally hide itself underwater until you come up to the creek to take a drink and then it kills you. They, They were so scared of these creatures that actually the Egyptians, they thought that hippos and crocs were demonic gods. 
bent on the destruction of the human race. To ancient peoples, hippos and crocs were symbols of evil. And so what God is saying to Job is, okay, Job, you think you are a better judge than me? Go out there. Deliver your people from these symbols of evil, the the hippo and the croc, the behemoth and the leviathan that want to destroy you. Go and subdue them. Well, Job couldn't. He was impotent against these symbols of evil. The only one who could defeat evil is God. That point is repeated throughout Scripture. It's a common theme. Psalm 74, you, this is speaking of God, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. It is only God who can subdue and restrain the behemoth and Leviathan. What God is trying to get Job to understand is, Job, I'm the only one. It's, It's only me who can defeat evil and bring about righteousness. Job, I'm your only hope. What what God wants Job to understand is it's absurd to accuse God of injustice when God is the only being in the universe who can actually uphold justice. If you will not trust God to do what is just, to bring about justice, then there's no hope for justice. If it's not God who's gonna set the universe right, then the universe will never be set right. There is no one else to defeat evil but God. That's his point. You cling to God. You trust God to be just because he's the only one who can deliver us from evil. If you will not cling to God, if you will not trust God's justice, then you have no hope. God is trying to get Job to understand why he is worthy of our trust. Now there's a lot that we've covered in the book of Job this morning. Trying to go through the whole book, looking at the big idea. Let's summarize this. Let's draw it together so that you understand what to walk away with this morning. So that you see how to apply this book. What is the big idea of the book of Job that we've studied this morning? Well, when we suffer, when life gets hard through no fault of our own, what we want to know is why God is letting this happen to us. When your life gets hard, what you want to know is why would a loving father allow his children to suffer? That's the age-old problem of evil. Why would an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God allow evil into his universe? We want an explanation. And yet God hardly ever answers that question in this life. He, he, He doesn't feel any need to give us an explanation. He is God and we are not. He doesn't owe us an explanation for why he allows things to happen. God does not answer that question. That's not the question that God wants us to fixate on. When we suffer, when life gets hard, what God wants us to focus on is not why we are suffering, but why he is worthy of our trust even when we suffer. That's the question that matters to God. That's what he cares about. And so the question that the book of Job presents to us, when we suffer, are we willing to abandon the first question and embrace the second? Are you willing to surrender your need to know why God has allowed this suffering in your life and instead choose to simply trust that God is good and that he knows what he's doing even if you can't see it yet? Job was willing to do exactly that. That's why he's a hero of the faith because he was willing to surrender the first question and embrace the second. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 42. 
Beginning of chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It's one of the most beautiful speeches of contrition you'll see anywhere in the Bible. Job bows before God and repents. He confesses, God, you are right. You are right and I am wrong. I, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't see how it fits together, but, but I choose to trust you. I choose to believe that you are good and that you know what you're doing even if I don't understand it. Job was willing to trust God. Are you? Are you willing to trust God even when life gets hard, even when you suffer through no fault of your own, even when life gets hard and and you have no idea what God is doing, will you trust him? That's ultimately what Christianity is all about. The essence of, of our religion is trust. Will you choose to trust God? That's where Christianity begins. You choose to trust God to save you from your sins and to to grant you eternal life. What makes you a Christian? It's not coming to church on Sundays. It's not reading your Bible. It's not praying. The thing that makes you a Christian is the choice to trust God for eternal life. You trust him to save you from your sins, not based on any good works you've done, but because Jesus, his son, went to the cross to die for your sins in your place and then rose from the dead so that God could grant you eternal life. Christianity begins with trust and Christianity grows with trust. The the measure of your maturity as a follower of Jesus Christ is trust. How much are you trusting of your life to God? Are you growing to trust him more? Not just with your eternal soul, but with all the parts of your life, with your relationships, with your job, with your career, with your finances, with your future. Are you trusting all of that to God? That is what pleases God. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. What, What delights the heart of God, your father? It's not all the stuff you do for him. It's that you trust him. It's that you're growing to trust him more and more deeply with more and more of your life. That's what pleases your heavenly father as he sees you grow to trust him more. That's what God wants from us. So when you suffer, when life gets hard, when it becomes painful through no fault of your own, will you choose to surrender your need to know why God has allowed this to happen? Will you abandon the first question? Will you let it go? And choose instead to cling to God in faith. To trust that he is good and that he knows what he's doing even if you can't see it yet. That's the challenge of the book of Job. Let's go to God and ask him to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you that you showed up in invisible form as a hurricane, as this powerful storm that you spoke audibly to Job and and through this book of Job, you've spoken now to us so that we can understand, so that we can learn. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grow us to trust you more. Father, so often we are like Job. When we suffer, we demand an answer from you. We want you to explain yourself to us. And so we pray that you would grow our trust, that that you would humble us and teach us, Lord. I pray that we would grow to believe that you really do know what you're doing, that you are running the world well, even if we can't see it yet, that there are reasons behind all that you're doing. 
I pray, Lord, that we would trust your goodness, your good plan. I pray that we would cling to you in faith, that we would believe that you love us even when we're in pain. I pray, Father, that you would enlarge our trust so that we would come to walk with you more faithfully. And I pray that as you grow our trust and as you grow our faith, that we would become greater lights to this world, that that like Job, we would become heroic examples of the power of faith. I pray, Lord, that you would raise us up to be a family of trust, a family of faith, that we would do remarkable things for you in trust and faith in your son. We thank you so much that you're a God and a Father who loves us, who knows what he's doing, who is good, who is wise. I pray that you would help us to believe that more deeply, to be convinced of it more fully. Pray all this through the power of your spirit for the glory and renown of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Next week, we'll be looking at the life of Elijah.